All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And the occasion here is the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I want to call your attention especially to the last verse in that last phrase where the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, thank you for gathering us here this morning and all that we've experienced already with the singing and the fellowship, Lord, and uh, just a good spirit. Father, we pray that as the Word of God is brought forth here this morning, uh, that we as fathers, Lord, and grandfathers and, and young men aspiring to be fathers someday might glean something from this that we can use to be better fathers. And most of all, Lord, that we might gain a greater appreciation of you, our Heavenly Father, and what a wonderful, perfect Father you are. Father, we know that uh, we as earthly fathers can never live up to your perfection, but we thank you for the example you set for us and as some of this music this morning has expressed, your mercy that you extend to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as soon as the baptism of Christ is finished, the Father speaks from heaven. I think it's interesting that the Lord chose that exact moment to verbally associate himself with his Son. And in this passage, we see some things that I think are really a great example for all of us as earthly fathers or earthly grandfathers. And um, why is this important? Well, a guy in a theology class, a teacher at a certain seminary, on the first day of the semester, he handed out a personal questionnaire to all the young men in the class. And the questions on the survey had to do with the students' perceptions of their father and the relationship that they had with him. The surveys were collected and nothing more was said about it. The students forgot all about them during the rigorous months of study about the first person of the Trinity, his attributes, his work, and his words. At the end of the course, the professor handed out a second survey. This time, the students were supposed to honestly record their perceptions of God and feelings about their relationship with Him. The questions, in fact, were the same as on the first survey they took, but redirected toward their heavenly Father, not their earthly Father. When the professor returned both the sets of surveys, including the previously forgotten one, the students were astounded that even after a whole semester of studying about God the Father, they still had trouble differentiating him relationally from their earthly father. And so we find this morning that God is not merely 
like a father, he is a father. I've often been uh, rebuked in my heart and mind, and I don't know that I ever heard this from anybody else. I just deducted this from the Word of God uh, about and, 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 and thinking in terms of having to give account to the Lord of my treatment of my wife and because I'm going to answer someday to my father-in-law <laughs> because God is my wife's father. And so this, this whole concept is so uh, pervasive and, and, and all-encompassing that I want to take a few minutes this morning and talk about it. And I'd like you to look at verse 17, first of all. And notice, first of all, that the father is not ashamed of his son. He calls him son. And, and he does so verbally. He does so in front of others. He does so uh, publicly. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 16, that God is not ashamed of his children. I was listening to this song that these young men were singing and, and uh, you know, talking about how God, you know, doesn't, doesn't throw our sins back in our faces. And I, I got thinking, I got thinking, you know, I've given, I've given the Lord plenty to be ashamed of me about. And yet, he's never given me anything to be ashamed of him about. And the Bible says he's, he's not ashamed of us, according to Hebrews chapter 11. Do you know, our children need to know that we're, and I'm, I'm going to use the word, but you understand the context I'm using it in. Our children need to know that we're proud of them. And we're not ashamed to claim them as our own. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this recent story of this 32-year-old father lining up his three little sons and, and killing them in front of the mother. I, I, I just, I, I just, I, I, can't even, I can't even fathom that. I can't even fathom that. But our Heavenly Father was not ashamed to call Jesus his son. A number of years ago in Louisiana, a motorist saw something hanging from a tree. When he stopped to investigate, he found it was the body of a young teenage boy. There was no identification on the body. There was nothing but a note that said, in part, Dear Mom and Dad, I am sorry I was an embarrassment to you. Our children need constant affirmation. Our children leave need constant affirmation. And, you know, if we give them that, they will usually try to live up to that estimation. And uh, young people, dad needs affirmation as well. Believe it or not, it's tough to be a dad. I know we think when we're growing up, you know, it's tough to be a youngster, it's tough to be a teenager, and uh, in its own ways it is, but it's also tough to be a dad, especially in this world where feminism gone awry has taken over and masculine is, masculinity is, is minimized and ridiculed. In fact, I think it's interesting, there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity. I wonder why there's no talk about toxic feminism. You ever wonder about that? 
It all seems to be one-sided these days. And so uh, that affirmation needs to go both ways. Be quick to let them know that you're proud of them. I know they got their quirks. I know they can drive you crazy sometimes. But if you'll stop and think and step back, they're probably better than you deserve on both sides of this equation. Uh, my kids are better than I deserve. In fact, I, I'm, I'm proud of all of them, their spouses and the grandkids, and uh, I'm just very happy with them. And, and I give my wife most of the credit for that. She spent the lion's share of time with them, especially homeschooling them and so forth. But um, be sure to let them know that you love them and you're not ashamed of them. You're not ashamed of them. And like I said, it goes both ways. Don't be ashamed of your father. Number two, if you look at the same verse, not only is the father not ashamed of the son, but the father adores the son. Notice the phrase in verse 17, this is my beloved son. Not just my son, but my beloved son. Beloved means one who is dearly loved. One who is dearly loved. Our kids can live without a lot of things. And I think in America, we, we, tend, to, we tend to spoil kids. We have a lot. If you don't believe we have a lot, leave the country, visit some other countries. And I'm not just talking third world countries. I, I'm, talking, I'm talking other first world countries. Honestly, I go to other countries that are first world countries, and compared to what we have, it's rinky-dink. You go to third world countries, you'll get off the plane when you come back, you'll kiss the ground. And, and we, we tend to think, you know, they, they need to have all the, all the, uh, the toys and all the recreation and, 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 and all of those opportunities, and we'll knock ourselves out to give them that. But how about, how about this one? Just assuring them of our love in word and in deed. I think of how God does it toward us. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Is, is that a lovey-dovey verse or what? <laughs> That's God talking to us, folks. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Just keep your hand here in Matthew 3 and flip over to Romans 8 and look at another example of this. I mean, folks, God, God could have probably written everything he needed to write in the Word of God in about one-tenth of what he did. But he tells us so many times, over and over and over again, and in so many ways, that he loves us. And take a look at verse 38. Paul says, For I am persuaded that either death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature... Is there anything he left out? <laughs> Nothing. He didn't leave anything out. Uh, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Uh, we were praying last night <clears throat> with the men for a, and I won't give too many details here, but an unsaved man who has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I said to my wife later on last night, I said, I would not for anything want to have to face that without, without having God with me. My God, this God of love, this God of love that loves me so unconditionally. And folks, we need to be careful. You know, we're King James, Bible-believing, dispensational, militant, blah, 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 right on down the line. And I know the liberal crowd will take love and, and misuse it and, and redefine it to, to mean licentiousness, by the way. Like, for instance, if you're not for drag queens grooming little children in open perversion, then you're full of hate and you don't love by their definition. Okay, that's a perversion of love in every way you look at it. In fact, the thing that amazes me more than anything else is parents that on the surface look intelligent, bringing their children to that. I mean, nobody's hog-tying them and dragging them there, and, and, and they're liberal-minded people that are doing it just to show how open-minded they are. Insane. But you know what? Because of all that misuse of the word love, we shouldn't react and not use the word. Folks, it's all over this book. And, and it's, it's God's word. And it's our word. And the Bible says God is love. Not love is God, but God is Love and the Father adores the Son. Why is it so hard sometimes just to say, I love you? I love you. I know some dads, they'll say, Well, I just wasn't raised that way, so I, I can't say it. Well, um, learn to say it. Tell your kids, tell your kids you love them. Look them in the eye. Tell them you love them. And by the way, kids, tell your dad you love him. So, oh, he's big, tough dad. He doesn't need it. Oh, yeah, he does. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. And if it's a little awkward at first, after a while, it'll start feeling natural. As brethren, why do we sometimes have a hard time saying, hey, bro, I love you? Amen? I mean... God tells us over and over again, and the Bible says we're taught of God to love one another. Hmm. A gal talks about when she was a child, she remembered when she was five or six years old having a big writing tablet on which she could do block printing. One day she took a sheet of that, of that paper, folded it in half, and wrote, I love you on the inside. And then she put her dad's name on the outside and covered the sheet with hearts and set it on his dresser. She had made a valentine for him, and it wasn't even Valentine's Day. 
Eagerly, she anticipated what she thought would be an enthusiastic response, but it never came. The next afternoon, she discovered the valentine was in a wastebasket. This had to be a mistake, she thought. He must not have seen it. She lifted the valentine from the trash and carefully stood it up in the center of his dresser. Her heart was pounding on the next day when she checked the wastebasket. But sadly, there it was again. Only this time it was crumpled with some other papers. He must not have liked it, she thought. Or maybe he didn't see it. She smoothed out the creases as best she could and placed the valentine on his dresser once more and made sure that it was very conspicuous so that this time he would certainly see it. The next day, Dad, Dad called her to him, and she remembered feeling very shy. Will you quit putting that note on my dresser, he demanded. I already know that you love me. When this little girl grew up and became a Christian, she thought about finding that valentine in the trash and how hurt she was and how she felt. Why hadn't my dad reached out and loved to me? And then she thought about her Savior. Jesus had put a valentine on her dresser. It had her name on the outside and on in the inside. It said, I love you. But the lettering was not with pencil. It was written in blood. It cost Jesus his life to send me his valentine. And, he's gl and she's glad that she didn't crumple it up and throw it away. From this verse, we see the father is not ashamed of his son. Number two, we see the father adores the son. And then number three, notice also in verse 17, the father accepts his son. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. It means basically that he approves of his son. He's basically saying, son, I approve of you. And, and he's saying it in front of others. Now, I, I know sometimes people can be a, a little delusional about the faults of their kids. And, and, and you say, how do you know that? Well, having been a pastor for uh, uh, nigh on to 45 uh, five years now, in fact, I think it's been 45 years, uh, there's been more than one occasion where, you know, a kid was having problems in Sunday school or the youth group or something like that, and and you try to work with them, you try to work with the parents, and uh, they just basically have the attitude, no, my, my kid could never be wrong, okay? <laughs> but we figure out otherwise over time, don't we? And uh, by the way, I'll make a deal with you. If you don't listen to your kids telling you stories about stuff at church here and in the school and in the youth group and in Sunday school, then uh, we won't believe their stories they tell us about you and your family. <laughs> How's that for a deal? Oh, my. Well, uh, you know what? We love them unconditionally in spite of their sin, but isn't that what God does with us? And uh, one of the things we need to be careful about is to never hold up their past before their eyes. 
A minister was visiting a rich man who had adopted a 12-year-old boy, a 12-year-old boy that he had taken right off the streets. Back in the days, they would have called him a street urchin. When the two men were talking, the boy, now 15, came into the room. After a casual greeting, the father went to the closet, pulled out a pair of tattered old shoes and said, Fred was wearing these when I found him. The minister saw that the teenager was embarrassed and deeply hurt, but the father went on. I think it's good for him to be reminded every once in a while of his condition when I took him in. Silently, the pastor prayed, thank you, Lord, for accepting me fully. Thank you for not dragging out my old shoes. Aren't you glad about that? You know, I read, I read Hebrews chapter 11, <coughs> and we read about the heroes of faith. And the amazing thing here, when you read that chapter, is, is, is you read about David, but you don't read about him numbering Israel. You read about David, you don't read about the adultery. You read about Moses, but you don't read him about him smiting the rock the second time, losing his temper and dishonoring God. Uh, you read about Noah, and you don't read about him getting drunk. Uh, you read about these men and these women, and it's all cleaned up. And aren't you glad for all eternity that your life is going to be all cleaned up? I think as we get older, one of the hardest things to live with is the regrets over sins and mistakes we've made. And I don't, I don't care how well you've done, you've got some of those, and isn't it good to know, isn't it good to know that God isn't going to drag those shoes out and dangle them in front of our face? Now, let me say this. I think it's good for us as believers to look back, and as the book of Isaiah says, Look back uh, to the hole of the pit from which we were hewn. And remember what God delivered us from. Amen? But isn't it, isn't it great that God doesn't dangle our sins in front of us and remind us and rub our nose in it? Now, let me say this, though. Let me say this, though. Uh, that doesn't mean because God loves you unconditionally that you can do anything you want doesn't mean you can poke them in the eye with your sin. It doesn't mean you can transgress with impudence. In fact, the Bible tells us that God as a father will chasten his children. And uh, uh, that's, that's, that's part of what the fear of the Lord is all about. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about it. And, I, and I'm glad he does. You, you know something I... I meet believers sometimes that the way they carry on in sin and don't seem to ever find repentance, you, you got to wonder sometimes if, if they're really saved. Because if you really know the Lord and you get too far away from him, he will chasten you. And you know why that is? It's because he loves you. He doesn't want you to get too far out of the way. He doesn't want you to stay too long over there. He wants to get you back on track. I remember when our kids were growing up, we, we chasing them. We, we gave them corporal punishment when we thought they needed it. Uh, it wasn't in style then. It's really not in style now, <laughs> but it's biblical. And you know what? I don't ever remember, I don't remember chasing anybody else's kids. I chasing my own. 
And that's the way God is. That's the way God is. And you know why he chastens his own? It's because he loves us. Because he's a perfect heavenly father. Sometimes when our kids are not right, our disapproval is just a wake-up call that they need. But the father was not ashamed of his son. The father adored the son. The father accepted the son. And then if you'll take your Bibles and go to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, we find that the father apprentices or, or trains the son. Trains the son. Uh, John chapter 5 and verse 17. I think this is, is so interesting because he, Jesus says in verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but if, if you've raised, uh, Dad, if you've raised a boy, you know how that is. They will emulate you. They, they will mimic you. They will almost mime you. They will, they will want to do what you're doing. And I'm amazed to see a statement that parallels that here in the end of verse 19 where Jesus says, For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, verse 20, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Dad, it's not nearly as important what you do for your sons and your daughters as much as it is what you do with them. Do not fall for the myth of quality time. The idea being that, well, I don't spend much time with my kids. I don't spend much time with my family. But the, fam the time I do uh, spend with them is, is quality time. Anybody that's, any father that's raised little boys has had something like this happen. You're, you're out there mowing the lawn and he jumps right in and he wants to help you push the mower. Now, is that going to help? <laughs> no. But, but if, if, you, if you slow down and don't worry about, you know, I got to get the lawn done by a certain time because I got my list of things to get done. And I remember one time my son came into the garage. I was changing the oil. I was underneath the vehicle. And uh, it was one of those times where, you know, the oil didn't just uh, nicely run into the pan like it was supposed to. <laughs> uh, the filter didn't come off just right. Uh, the way it was supposed to. And I mean, it got all over the place. It was running down my arms to my shirt. and It was, it was all over the garage, and it was just a big mess. And uh, he wanted to get in there and help me. And I remember my first reaction was, I don't have time for this kid. And then God tapped me on the shoulder, and he says, you, you, need, you need to do this. So he got in there, you know, and I let him tighten the nut back on the oil pan and all that stuff, and and uh, fellas, it's not, always, it's not always what we do for them, it's what we do with them.
I'm amazed when I see a verse like 19 here in chapter 5. And I see, I see Jesus, the Son of God, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son also. Uh, brother brother uh, uh, Titus Thomas has come to my house a couple times and done some plumbing. And uh, each time he's come, he's had, he's had little Troy with him. And man, little Troy comes in there, you know, carrying tools. And man, he's just, you know, he's a force to be reckoned with here. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, no, you won't get as much done. No, it won't be done as efficiently. Yes, you'll have to go back and redo some stuff, but it's worth it. What are you building? You're building a relationship. What are you building? You're building a man. You're building a man. A young man was to be sentenced to the penitentiary for committing forgery. The judge had known him from childhood, for he was well acquainted with his father, a famous legal scholar and the author of an exhaustive study entitled The Law of Trusts. Do you remember your father, asked the magistrate. I remember him well, your honor, came the reply. Then trying to probe the offender's conscience, the judge said, as you are about to be sentenced, and as you think of your wonderful dad, what do you remember most clearly about him? There was a pause. Then the judge received an answer he didn't expect. I remember, sir, when I went to him for advice, he looked at me from the book he was writing and said, run along, boy, I'm busy. He said, I remember when I went to him for companionship that he turned me away saying, run along, son, this book must be finished. Your Honor, you remember him as a great lawyer. I remember him as a lost friend. The magistrate was heard to mutter to himself, alas, finish the book, but lost the boy. Time spent with our children is never time wasted. Never time wasted. Uh, there are some days where I'll come home and maybe I spent a lot of time at the office, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure what I accomplished. But on some of those days, maybe I'll give my daughter a call and say, hey, uh, is my granddaughter open for a date? I have lunch open. Or maybe grab one of my grandsons and do something with him for even just a half an hour or an hour or something. And I will say to my wife when I get home, and I'll say, well, I know there was one thing in my day that was not wasted. And the time you spend with your kids is not wasted times. Charles Adams, the son of President John Adams, wrote in his diary one day, quote, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted, unquote. The boy, however, had a different perspective on the day. The entry in his diary for that date reads, quote, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life, unquote. You say, how important is all of this? Is this just a bunch of sentimentalism? Is this just a bunch of lovey-dovey stuff? Is this just a bunch of psychology applied to the Bible, all this business of, of, of the importance of the Father and, and our perception of God and all these other things? How big a deal 
is it really? Take your Bibles and go to Malachi chapter 4. And I want to close with this. Malachi chapter 4. And Malachi chapter 4, when you get done with the book of Malachi, between Malachi and the book of Matthew are what's called uh, in, in, uh, in Bible theology the 400 silent years. God goes silent for 400 years. He doesn't say anything else to man by revelation for 400 years. And I want you to notice what the last thing he has to say to man before he goes silent for 400 years. Let's start with the first verse. It's a short chapter. <clears throat> for behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And that day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Now he's talking about the second advent of Christ here, the return of Christ. And in verse 3, the Bible says, And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And then notice the last two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children. And the heart of the children to their fathers. Now, all this great prophetic material about Christ returning. And, and if you think of the book of Daniel, you think of the book of Revelation, and you think of the Antichrist and the battle of Armageddon and, and world governments and nations and the greatest world war that the, 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 the world has ever seen or ever will see. And what does God single out as the most important issue? And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Now watch this last phrase and tell me if we're not already seeing this. Lest I come and smite the earth with what? A curse. What's the biggest thing wrong with our world today? According to the word of God, and if we'll look at what's going on around us with our eyes open and our brains engaged, we will agree with this 100%. It's the disconnect. It's the disconnect that families and society, and it's by design, and the designer is Satan. He's the lawless one. He tries to stand everything that God has set up on its head, reverse it, mess it up. It's the disconnect with fatherhood. We're already seeing the rotten fruit of all of that. You want to go to places in Chicago and in Detroit where whole neighborhoods look like bombed out Beirut, abandoned. The only thing there are, 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 are drug gangs occupying a few vacant buildings. Prisons loaded with the sons 
of these neighborhoods. And what's the common denominator? Dad's nowhere to be found. Is the Bible contemporary or what? How important is this? Before God goes silent for 400 years, verses 5 and 6 are the last things he has to say to us. And he's going to send Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. May I challenge you. May I challenge you this morning. As fathers, is your heart toward your children. And maybe your kids are grown up. And, and, and maybe some of them are doing right and some of them aren't. And maybe some of them are far away and some of them are near. Let me say something. Nobody is out of reach of our prayers. Grandfathers, same thing. Children, the hearts of the children toward the fathers. Don't just honor dad on Father's Day. Honor him the other 364 days of the week. Because Malachi 4 tells you how important dad really is. At the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, the world watched as a parable of the father's love was played out on international television. As the gun sounded for the 400-meter race, Great Britain's Derek Redmond knew that this was his lifelong dream of winning the gold medal, and it was now in view. But as he entered the back stretch, Redmond was sent sprawling by the ripping pain of a torn hamstring. By an act of sheer will, he struggled to his feet in excruciating pain and began hopping toward the finish line. Suddenly, Derek's father bounded out of the stands, past a security guard, threw his arms around his son, and in a voice choked with emotion, he whispered, Come on, son, let's finish this together. The crowd cheered and wept as they watched the father, half carrying his wounded son, jerkily down the stretch and across the finish line. When I think of that story, I think about Christian fathers finishing the race. I think of Christian sons and daughters finishing the race. And maybe that's how it's going to have to go. But if it is, that's the way we got to do it. Amen? We may not be high striding going across that finish line, but we can get across, and we're going to need each other to do it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that you're a perfect father. And Lord, that's more than any of us could, could emulate to a T. But Lord, it's certainly something we could strive for. It's certainly an example we can follow. Help us as fathers and grandfathers to do what we can do. Help us sons and daughters and moms to uplift dad the world is tearing dad down we see it Lord and we see the results of it all around us carnage everywhere it is as if you've already smitten the earth with a curse 
because the hearts of the fathers are away from the children and the hearts of the children away from the fathers but may it not be true of us Lord may our hearts be turned toward one another in your love the only love that can overcome our human sinfulness and our human frailty and our abilities to make mistakes and to blunder help us now we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number 119. Number 119. <clears throat>
Brother Ben Smoker, would you come on up here and close us in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in your house today. Lord, thank you for the example that you set us. Lord, the, the, the very concept of Father and Son is built into the Godhead. It's who and what you are. Lord, we pray that you help each father here to have gained much from the preaching today. Lord, help us as your sons to be honorable to you as our father. Lord, may we be thankful for the families that we have. Lord, how good you've been to us. Lord, I think of myself, the fact that I was adopted by a Christian family and given a great earthly father when my birth father didn't want to know who I was. And Lord, that's exactly how it is with salvation. When we receive you for salvation, Lord, we become your sons. We're adopted into your family. Lord, I pray that today uh, people will bond together as families, be strong. May they be Christian families. Lord, those who uh, can't be with their families today in person, may they get on the telephone and just reinforce the love that they have for their families. Lord, may we be truly thankful for all that you've done good for us. And Lord, give us grace to overlook what wasn't right, what wasn't perfect. Lord, we pray that the time that people spend uh, as families today, this afternoon, and with no church service this evening, Lord, I pray that we time well spent. Lord, thank you for the word of God, which teaches us about your relationship between the Father and the Son. We ask you to dismiss us now with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.